All right, Frack family, it is time to study the Word of God together. I'm going to read our verses this morning, uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So read the words of the living God. When we began this study of the Gospel of John back in the fall of 2018, we started right here with these two verses. The reason we started here at the end is because John tells us why he wrote this book. He says, I'm writing this so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what I just read to you. And he gives us the purpose statement here. And also at the beginning there in that first sermon, we talked about the setting. As far as we can determine, John was writing in around 85 AD, some 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he was probably in Ephesus. One wonders why he waited so long to write this. And we don't know for sure. One possibility is, as an older man, he is realizing his time on this earth is probably coming to an end, and he looked around him and saw many, many people who do not have the hope of life that he has come to know intimately and personally through his own experience with Jesus. And he, and he sees their desperation, he sees their, uh, their hopeless state, and he thinks, I need to write this down. Now, all of us, as we get older, we can identify with that, uh, that desire to leave a legacy. Uh, the things that are most important in life tend to rise to the top. Um, I just turned 50 a month ago, and uh, I'm not an old man. If, if the average American male lives to be 80, I'm still middle-aged. But I have found since turning 50, just that number, I find myself more and more thinking about the future, thinking about my legacy, what I'm leaving behind, and, and what are the most important things I want to spend my time on uh, in these next years or decades if the Lord gives me those. If I were John's age, 80, whatever, something, we don't know exactly, but if I were down the road that far, no doubt I would be thinking, I want to write down the story of Jesus and make sure that I tell as many people as I can about this. Now think about his, his situation. If he's in Ephesus, and, and if we have all that right, he looks around and he sees people who are, who are lost. You have the, the Greeks and the Romans who are worshiping idols, so they are hopeless. But even his fellow Jews, they had rejected Jesus as Messiah. And they are hopeless too. They do not have the life that John has come to know so well. He heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. He heard Jesus say that I've come to give you life and give it abundantly. He heard Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John looks around and he sees a whole lot of people who don't know that life. And he, he wants to write it down and is desperate for people to understand this. Now suppose he were writing in our day. Suppose he were writing to Americans in the 21st century. What would he see as he looked around our culture? Well, he wouldn't see idolatry in the same sense that he saw in the Greeks. We don't bow down as a culture before 
hand-carved statues. He would certainly see idolatry in the, in the sense of pursuing prosperity and pleasure and power. He would find people who are convinced that this life really is all there is. We've been taught all the days of, of education. If you went to a, a public school and, and read government-controlled textbooks, which are based on evolutionary theory, uh, you, you, you were born out of an accident and you're going into nothing and, and this life is all there is. And so people pursue the best they can in this life. And when things are great, things are pretty, pretty great. I mean, think about all the comforts we enjoy here. Most of you are watching this, uh, sitting in your comfortable PJs, sitting in a comfortable chair with your Keurig uh, coffee made, enjoying just a relaxing morning with all the comforts. You can have the temperature in your house exactly where you want it. And if you get bored with that, you can get out and go drive somewhere and go hiking. And there's, there's a lot of wonderful things in our, in our life compared to ancient cultures. Life is good in a lot of ways. And we have a culture of people pursuing those three things, pleasure and prosperity and power. We also have another Bible book written by a man who experienced the epitome of all, the apex of all of those things. I'm talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. And there the writer is very honest uh, about where the pursuit of those things leads. This man, and I, I presume it was Solomon, I know it's, it's disputed as to exactly who wrote it, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, for now I'm gonna go with Solomon. Solomon had the greatest life any human being could possibly experience in terms of things under the sun, things that man wants. Solomon had all the wealth he could handle, more than, more than he needed by far, and he prospered in everything he set his hand to. He had pleasure, uh, he had women, uh, more women than, <laughs> than one man can handle, which is, you know, two and up, right? But he had, he had uh, the, the, the power of, of being the king of Israel, and God blessed him at every turn. And as Solomon reflects on uh, his life and his pursuit of these things. And, and by the way, he says that. He didn't just stumble onto these riches and, and things. He didn't just um, accidentally do them. He pursued them. He pursued wisdom. He pursued pleasure. He pursued alcohol, drugs, if you will. He pursued everything to see where it leads. And as he reflected on his life spent doing that, he concluded that all is vanity. All of it is meaningless. If there's nothing beyond the sun, it's all just a mist. Uh, the word that's translated vanity there is the word for vapor. Uh, some of you have taken one of my classes, and uh, there's at least one man listening to this right now who, uh, who remembers this visual uh, illustration I use very, very well. I, in, in one of my seminary classes, I bring in a, a mister, a, uh, a squirt bottle, and I switch it to mist setting. And you know you just kind of squirt, and it shoots out a mist. And you can see the mist for a second, and then dissipates, and it's gone. And the reason the one gentleman will remember that is because I, I squirted him and, uh, and he didn't like that very much. But it got the point across, except the water on his shirt maybe lasted a little longer, but eventually it evaporated because that's what water does. That's the word he used, breath or mist or vapor. All is this vaporous 
nothing that goes away. All the power, all the pleasure, all the prosperity, all the happiness this life has to offer, if you pursue that as an end in itself, it ends up in nothing. It doesn't satisfy. He, he talks about that. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. No one ever gets to a display some visage, maybe here in the Rocky Mountains, and you look out and you see just this glorious uh, expanse of the Rocky Mountains, maybe that's his park or something. Nobody ever looks at something like that and says, that's it, I never need to see anything again. No, that's great for the moment. Then we want to see something else because our eyes are not satisfied with seeing. And on it goes. And, and the writer there says, it just all ends up in vanity if this life is all there is. And we're surrounded by people who are trying to find meaning and purpose and hope in a meaningless existence because they're convinced this is all there is and it just doesn't satisfy. Now, that's when things are going well. Right now, we're in the midst of a crisis where sort of the opposite of pursuing pleasure and power and prosperity, there is a a panic, a fear. How many people are going to die? How far is this disease going to spread? Are we going to be able to cure it? And if that doesn't get us, is the economy going to fall so far that we're going to be devastated? If this life is all there is and everything starts tanking, then we become hopeless. We become... Um, angry, we become fearful, we become desperate and despairing and depressed because this only thing that there is, is going badly. And now we don't know where to turn. I think if John were writing in our day, he would be trying to persuade people of the same thing the writer of Ecclesiastes was, there is hope beyond the sun. And there is because of Jesus. For his audience, he is desperate for them to believe. We saw this in last week's text. Three times he talks about believing. Jesus does, and, and John quotes Jesus. First of all, he says to uh, Thomas, put your hands right here and don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And then when Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. And then here in our text, he says, I've written these things so that you will believe. Because faith in Jesus is the only way for anyone to have life. His own audience, his Jewish audience, the pagan audience that he lived among, if he were writing today, which we have his writing today, thankfully, it's the same message. Eternal life comes through faith. It comes through believing in who Jesus is. For his audience, for the Jews, he tells us he's writing these particular signs down that Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples. Now, there's something about that statement that catches my attention. Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples. Now, why does John put that little phrase in there? Why does he describe the signs as those done in the midst of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and so on. Well, because Jesus knew the plan, Jesus was not going to stay here on earth forever. He was going to ascend to the Father, and Jesus himself was not going to go into all the world and tell people about him. 
these disciples were. These were the men who were going to turn the world upside down, as Luke will tell us in Acts. These are the men who are going to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus does his, his works of, of power not in a, in a secret place. He didn't do it always publicly for everybody, but he did it in front of these men so that they would believe and have stories to tell so that others would believe. So it says, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. There's so many other signs that are not written in this book. And we know from reading the other Gospels. We, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read those and we see lots of miracles that Jesus, uh, that are not recorded here that Jesus did in John. But they are recorded in those books. He says here, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or that Jesus is the Messiah. That's a Jewish term. This is the one the Jews had been waiting for for generations. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. And they had pretty high expectations for the Messiah. As they read the Old Testament predictions of this one who had come, there was a lot to be excited about. Uh, Isaiah, for instance, describes this one who is coming who will give sight to the blind and the lame will leap like deer and he will set the captives free and he will be anointed by the spirit of god and he will speak truth and he will render righteous judgments and he will act righteously and he won't be swayed by opinion, by, by polls, popular opinion, that kind of thing. He won't be swayed by some internal desire. He will only rule based on what is right and true, according to God. And on and on it goes. And in the intertestamental period, when the, the Jews were enslaved, they were, they were down, they were depressed, they were, they were uh, forlorn because they are supposed to reign over the earth, so they thought, and they were waiting for the Messiah and, and all the promises of the old covenant that they would conquer their enemies and they would prosper in every way. Here they are generation after generation, year after year, century after century, they're enslaved and they were down and the attention began to turn toward this coming Messiah as they were desperate for him to come and free them from the, the rulership of the Greeks and the Romans and others before them. So they had great expectations for this coming one, for this Messiah who would be their deliverer and rescuer and king. So if you recall, way back in the beginning when we looked at this uh, first section of John, or the last section we looked at in the first sermon, we talked about how John was teaching and, and trying to persuade this Jewish audience that Jesus really was the Messiah. And in order to do that, one of the things he had to do was he had to discredit the Pharisees. And he's done a pretty good job, as we have seen. The Pharisees, uh, they look pretty bad in how they've handled this whole thing. And the reason he had to discredit the Pharisees is because the Jews all looked to the Pharisees as the religious leaders, as the spokesmen for God, and they rejected Christ. So in order for John to persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah, he had to say the Pharisees were wrong and show their bias and the agenda that they had to 
to dismiss with Jesus. The second thing that, he, that John had to do to persuade the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah was to show that he really did fulfill all of those promises and prophecies from the Old Testament. So these signs, the ones that he chose to write in this book, were specifically chosen to prove to the Jewish audience Jesus fits the bill. He is the Messiah. So the first one that he records, Jesus is there with his mother and his disciples. And they're at a wedding, a great time of feasting and celebration. And the wine ran out. This was a great embarrassment to the host. And if you recall, we talked about some of the possible nuances of what was going on there. And we don't know the whole story, but we do know that Mary, Jesus' mother, is convinced that Jesus can do something about this. And so he says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, hey, it's not my time yet. Don't bring this to me. Mary seemed to think, oh, I can persuade him. And <laughs> he said, do whatever he tells, she said, do whatever he tells you to do. And you remember the story, we, we talked about whether uh, it was the pitchers of water that he actually turned into wine, which is the common view, or whether it was the water in the well. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What matters is Jesus turned water into wine. Now we're familiar with that, but let that sink in. A man shows up to a wedding and he takes water, ordinary water. They knew it was water because they had been dumping it into these pots and filled all these pots full of water. And then he says, draw some out. And this time it's wine. That'll get your attention. And that proves this is no ordinary man. This is, this is somebody that you should pay attention to. So that was the first miracle that he performed. And then we have several healings that John lists. Uh, there is the royal official's son who's not even there in front of Jesus. Jesus just says to the man, go your way, your son is healed. Then there's that man who's laying on a pallet next to a pool that he was convinced if he could get into the pool, when the waters were stirred up, that he would be healed. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? And he says, I can't be because no one's here to help me get into the, to the pool. Jesus says, you don't need any of that. It's not about the magic water. Get up. And this man who could not walk got up and picked up his bed and left. Then a little bit later, he sees a man who has been blind from birth. It wasn't just some injury. It wasn't uh, old age setting in where he could see for a while and then he couldn't. It wasn't macular degeneration or something like that. This man could not see ever in his whole life. And Jesus heals him. Very clear fulfillment of those predictions that he would give sight to the blind. Then on another occasion, he creates something out of nothing. He, he takes some fishes and some loaves of bread and multiplies them and feeds not just a few more, but thousands of people. Just out of nothing creates these fishes and loaves to feed 
thousands. And that's 5,000 men. I think we talked about this when we went through this passage. If they had wives and children around, this could have been 15, 20,000 people easy that he fed with just a few. If that wasn't enough, he walked on water across the sea. And then the big one. Then, even though there's plenty of skeptics around after seeing and hearing about all of this, he walks up to a tomb where there's a man who has been dead for days. They'd had the funeral. It was done. No chance that this, this is just some kind of a coma or paralysis or something. He's dead. Everybody knows he's dead. And Jesus calls his name. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb alive. What more proof should anybody need, especially the Jewish people, what more proof should they need that this one is the Messiah? And that's the kind of chatter that went on among the Jews. Uh, do you remember the Samaritan woman? He sat down next to her and they had the conversation and he says, you know, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had several. And the one you're with now is not your husband. That got her attention. And if you remember, she said, we know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. So she was persuaded. The only reason this man knew this about her, whom she'd never met before, he's the Messiah. He's the one. And over and over again, people would say, when the Messiah comes, surely he won't do more things than Jesus, will he? As they watch these miracles, surely no one will do more than he's doing. He must be the Messiah. And then, of course, the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders, no, 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 no. He's a fraud. He's a sham. He's, a, he's an idolater, a blasphemer. There was this talk, and there was a lot of people saying, this, the only thing that explains this man is that he really is the coming one. They were expecting a, a prophet uh, better than Elijah, doing miracles greater than Elijah. They were expecting a leader better than Moses. They were expecting a king greater than David. And Jesus matched all of those criteria. And yet the majority of them rejected him. And if none of that is persuasive, the greatest miracle he could ever possibly perform. This man predicted his own crucifixion, which in and of itself may not be that impressive. If you know you're going to go down to the, 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 the capital of all your enemies, and you know they carry some political clout, and you think, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to raise a stink, and they will probably execute me, okay? That part's believable. He predicted his own crucifixion. Yeah, big deal. But he predicted that on the third day, he would come back to life on his own authority. I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me, and I will raise it up again. The greatest miracle in the history of the universe 
this man died, he came back to life on his own power. And John writes all of these down, trying to persuade his Jewish brothers and sisters or you know, uh, kindred folk, this is the Messiah, believe in him. Now I said they had a very high view or had very high expectations of the Messiah, but as high as they were, they weren't high enough. John says, I'm writing so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah, the Son of God. What the Jew could not fathom was that God would send his true Son to this earth. And that this man, Jesus, who was doing all these things, was not, was not just a prophet in the spirit of Elijah or Moses and doing great th things by the power of God. He is God himself. Jesus has been saying this all the way along, and John wrote it down. Uh, no one has seen the Father. This one has explained him. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can he say that? Because he is God's son. He's the Messiah, the Christ. And if we believe that, we have life. Not just life here, but eternal life, which is the most important life. We all know this life's going to come to an end. And we know there are going to be ups and downs. The life Jesus promises is not a life pain-free here and now. It's not a life disease-free here and now. But it's life after death. It's eternal life in a place where there will be no more disease and sorrow and pain and suffering. And yet... It has significant implication for the here and now when we get this, when we understand this. The highs aren't quite as high because we know it's going to get better. And the lows are not devastating because we know how this ends. We know where this is going. And we can endure the hard things now and the uncertainties now because we know we have eternal life after death. So here we are in, uh, in May, and uh, I'm, I'm a baseball fan. And as a baseball fan, uh, there's only one team worth rooting for, and that, of course, is the St. Louis Cardinals. And I miss baseball. One of the problems with this quarantine is here I am stuck at home, and I can't watch baseball. Um, well, uh, so... The St. Louis Cardinals, knowing people were, were locked down for a while, they decided to uh, put on this competition to, to rank the greatest moments in Cardinals history. And there was one moment that, uh, that got way more votes than any, any other. And as a father who is required to teach my children well, I needed to show this moment to my children so they are educated in this great moment in Cardinals history. Uh, I'll never forget it. It was a 2011 World Series. And the Cardinals were down three games to two. It's in the ninth inning, and they're down to their last strike. And the batter was a, a guy named David Fries. Uh, he's not a great player in Cardinals history. Uh, he's not going to make it to the Hall of Fame. 
but he will be remembered by Cardinal fans forever. He went to my high school, by the way, maybe a few years after I did, but nonetheless, he came up. He's got two strikes on him. There's a couple men on base. We're down by two. Two strikes. It's a long fly ball to deep right center. Off the wall to triple. We tied up, and the Cardinals have hope. The very next inning, Cardinal closer Jason Mott gives up a two-run homer. Oh, the elation and then the agony. The Cardinals somehow, in the bottom of the 10th, scrape out two more runs to tie it up again. All right, we're all just on the edge of our seat. A couple innings go by, it's the 12th inning. David Freese is up again. Home run to win game six, force a game seven, and the Cardinals won game seven handily. Now, when we're watching that in 2011, it was intense. When I showed it to my kids a little while ago, it was fun. And I will admit, there was a few moments when the heart got beating faster a little bit and, and I got excited. But the highs were not nearly as high as when I was watching it live. And when Hamilton hit the two-run homer to tie it up in the, or to take the lead in the top of the 10th, I wasn't worried at all. Why? Because I knew how the game ended. I knew the Cardinals would win and have victory and it changed how I experienced this replay. Well, we're not in a replay, but we know how this game ends. We know what happens on the other side of death. We have eternal life if we believe in Jesus Christ. And that gives us great joy when he's pouring out his favor and blessing, and it gives us hope when things get hard, because we know we win in the end. Victory is sure. Life is sure. Because Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. If you're watching this and you are not a Christian, you can have life and life eternal. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died, that he rose again, and that he is the king. For all of us who do believe that, let us persevere through this next month or two, and indeed for the rest of our life, holding fast to the joy set before us and endure whatever suffering comes our way because we know how this ends. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of John. Thank you for inspiring John to write it down so that we have this information that's not just intellectual, but it grips our hearts. And through the current circumstances and into the decades ahead, would you give us sincere faith that we will hold fast to the end and be with you someday in eternal life because Jesus is the Messiah, 
the Son of God. I ask in his name. Amen.